welcome to the preaching ministry podcast of Mount Pisgah Baptist Church in Easley, South Carolina. Our goal is to exalt the Savior, evangelize the sinner, and encourage the saint through faithful exposition of God's Word. This morning, we're going to be in Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, I want to invite you to turn there with me. And we're going to be looking at a story where Jesus raises a man from the dead back to life. And the title of this message is The Proof About His Person. The Proof About His Person. Um, so back, back in the 1800s, there was an artist from France named Paul Gustave Doré. And many of you if, you, if you like art, you may have heard um, and seen some of his work, but he was really famous there in Europe back in the early and mid 1800s, um, mainly because of his work through like religious paintings, um, but he was also kind of innovative. So he actually put together some wooden books that he would go in and carve out designs and drawings and sell those books for you know pictures for people to read and just an incredibly talented artist. But one of the things that made him really well-known around Europe was the fact that he was the cartoonist for a paper in France. And so we all know, like, if you read the paper, that's my favorite part. Amen. Um, just reading the cartoons, you know, Garfield and all that stuff. But he was traveling through Europe and he made a trip to Italy and on his way back somewhere between leaving France, going to Italy and on the way back, he lost his passport. So he had his ticket, had his luggage, but he just misplaced his passport. And so he, through the train system, he goes to customs as he's at the border of France and he just begins to talk to the guy. He's hoping that he can kind of sweet talk him and that the guy would just look for his ticket because he did get on the train the first time, right? But as customs did they, back in the day, as they do now, they begin to ask for a proper identification and they ask for his passport. So the guy, like, like many of us would do, he's just patting around. He's like, ah, I must have misplaced it. But I'm Paul Gustave DeRay. Like you probably have heard of me. I'm here from France. I was doing a business trip and I, I'm Paul, the guy that does the cartoons in the paper. Now the, the customs guy is told that he heard that. And he's like, I know who Paul is, but I, I just know his work. I've never seen his face. So I'm sorry. I can't let you through without a passport. And you, you could say that you could say you're anybody, but unless I have a picture with a name, I'm not going to be able to let you through. Well, after going back and forth for a moment, uh, this guy finally looked, he's like, look, I promise you I'm the artist, Paul Gustave DeRay. Like I, I can prove it to you. Well, this guy from customs, he pulls out a, a pencil, pulls out a piece of paper, and he says, all right, see that group of people over there? Paul's like, yeah. He said, I want you to sketch them out. Just draw them out for me. If you really are who you say you are, your words will match your work. Now, if that would have been me, it would have been like three stick figures with the, the lady with the hair. You know what I'm talking about? Just like that right there. Maybe a little bow if, I was, if I'm feeling wild that day. But like, that's, that's all I can do. But in a matter of seconds... Paul, he pulls out that sketch and he looks at the people. He looks down, he just begins to sketch it out and he shows his work to this guy at customs. He's like, listen, I know you said you're Paul, but your words here, they match your work. This is, this is none other than the great artist, Mr. DeRay of France. So for this guy, he was able to get through and go back home because his words and his works, they matched each other. Now, this morning, what we're going to find is that through the gospel of Luke, Luke is outlining that Jesus is the Christ. He's the son of man. And he's trying to prove not only the fact that he was God on earth, but he's really highlighting the fact that Jesus came and lived in a man's body. He was fully man and fully God. But in this story alone, I believe that for the people there that watched it and then for you and I, we have so much proof that Jesus is who he says he is based on his words and based on his works. 
So this morning, as we look in this passage and we see the proof in his person, I want to ask you if you would stand to your feet in honor and reverence of God's holy, inspired, infallible, and inerrant word. So here in Luke chapter seven, we're going to begin reading down in verse 11. It says, and it came to pass the day after that he, Jesus, went to the city called Nain and many of his disciples went with him and much people. Now, when he came nigh to the gate of the city, behold, there was a dead man carried out the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And much people of the city was with her. And when Jesus saw her, he had compassion on her and said unto her, weep not. Now in that moment, Jesus and his crowd, they're moving into the city while a funeral procession is coming out. And I don't, if you're a highlighter in the Bible, you like to underline things, that phrase, and he had compassion on her, that's something that should jump out at you. He tells her to weep not. And then it says in verse 14, and he came and touched the bier or the coffin that they bear him in and they stood still. And he said, young man, I say unto thee, arise. And he that was dead sat up and began to speak. And he delivered him to his mother and there came a fear on all and they glorified God saying that a great prophet is risen up among us and that God has visited his people. And this rumor of him went forth throughout all Judea and throughout all the region round about. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for who King Jesus is. He backs it up based on what he did on this earth. God, we know that he's King of Kings and he's Lord of Lords. God, we know that he's the King of life and that he holds the keys to death, hell, the grave, and our sin. And so Lord, I pray that we as Christians in this room, we would just have more confirmation and more peace that we know that we're serving the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. But for those in this room that need you to prove themselves to them, I pray that you would do that, Lord. Save somebody this morning, Lord. We pray that you'd speak in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Proof in his person. Now, Jesus in this passage, as we've seen, is making his way to a place called Nain. He's got a group of people around him but what we're going to find out is that his words and his work proved that he really was God, that he really is God, and that he really was the person he said he is. So this morning, as we look at the proof in his person, I want you to notice three things with me about this passage. And the first thing I want you to notice is the context of this campaign, the context of this campaign. Now, if you know Jesus's ministry, he spent a lot of times going from journeys from one city to the next. And most of the time in between his journeys, he would spend time alone with the Lord in prayer. And so you would often see him teaching and ministering and doing miracles inside a large group of people. Things like feeding the 5,000 and then going through city walls and, and, and allowing the blind to have sight. He would go and move. And as he would go, he would teach them and show them that he really was God and that he was the Messiah. But on this specific campaign, he goes to an out-of-the-way village and just so happens to cross paths with a funeral procession. Now, in this campaign, I need you to see a few things about this place, the group that was with him, and then the, the providence that, that was unfolding right before our eyes. Notice with me the specific place that Jesus went. This place called Nain, this is the only time in Scripture that that city is mentioned. It's still a city nowadays, like you can go and visit Nain, Israel, and there's about 200 people that live there, and it's a small village on the, the, the side of a mountain, but the city Nain, the meaning of it in Hebrew is green pastures or beautiful, lovely, 
And so this city, like it was a quaint little village. And I think it's just really awesome that Jesus in his campaign, the great shepherd went to a place of green pastures. So he makes his way to this city and it's about six miles away from, from Nazareth and, and Nazareth. And it's about 20 miles south of Capernaum. Now, Jesus went to this specific place for a specific purpose to make a specific provision for a specific person. Now here for Jesus, as he goes to this city and as he makes his way to this village, he's looking out and he knows that he's going to cross paths with this funeral procession. So he goes to this specific place. I'm going to have to get away from these S's and P's real quick. I'm about to start stuttering. Y'all know what I'm talking about. But in this campaign, Jesus goes to Nain, this out of the way village. And he started in Luke chapter seven in Capernaum. And in Capernaum, he goes into the city after teaching for a little bit. And what we find, and I believe this is why all these people began to follow him as he, as he goes into this, the city Capernaum, this crowd of people come running up to Jesus. And you can read about this in the first 10 verses of this passage, but they come running up to Jesus and they say, Lord Jesus, teacher, rabbi, one of our soldiers, one of the Roman soldiers that lives around here, man, he's a man that's worthy. He's a man that's worthy for you to work and worthy for you to do something. He, he's, he's somebody that deserves your time and your attention. And he's got a servant in his house that's sick. Of all the people you've ever dealt with, this is a guy that's worthy. So Jesus hears that testimony. The Roman centurion comes to Jesus and the centurion looks at Jesus and he's like, right, listen, man, I don't know what these guys just said to you, but I need to get something straight. I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy for you to even be speaking to me, much less come into my house. But I do recognize that you're a man of authority. Now imagine like, imagine the crowds of people that are already around him. He says, you're a man of authority and all you have to do is speak a word and things will happen. Jesus steps back and he says, I've never seen such great faith in all of Israel. And he says, go. And he heals the servant just through his word. So imagine the, the uproar and the excitement that's happening there in Capernaum. All these people, they knew that this Roman centurion soldier's servant was sick. They knew that he was, that he was sick. They knew that he was in a bad spot. And all of a sudden he's walking out. He's at the town hall. He's going to the restaurants and everybody sees something happen. Well, they're putting the dots together, right? They're connecting the dots. They're thinking, okay, he was sick. Jesus said he's healed. Now he's healed. There's something different about this man named Jesus. So the multitudes, they see that, they recognize that. And you know what they do? Jesus says, hey, I gotta go somewhere else. You know what they did? They just packed up and they went with him. So he goes to a specific place, but he also took a significant amount of people with him. So notice that about this, the, this campaign, the significant amount of people. Down there in verse 11, says that he went into a city called Nain and many of his disciples went with him and much people. Jesus created some excitement. When Jesus showed up, things changed. When Jesus showed up, the blind received sight. When Jesus showed up, the lame were able to walk. When Jesus showed up, the deaf were able to hear. When Jesus showed up, the mute were able to talk. People began to realize that. They began to see that. And so what they were saying, they're saying, I just want to go and see him do more. I want to go see him continue to prove himself. This is somebody that's different. He's saying he's of God. He's saying he's the Messiah. He's saying he's the resurrection and the life. I just want to go and follow him and see what he's going to do next. You know what's amazing? That's really kind of being lived out here at Mount Pisgah. Jesus is in our midst, man. We're just trying to magnify him each and every week. And you know what's happening? People are flocking in here. 
people coming from TR and, and Slabtown, the great city, and they're coming from everywhere, man. Why? Not because of a, uh, and he'll say this too, not because of a person on staff, not because of a pastor in the pulpit, not because of music, not because of grow groups, but because of Jesus. He's being magnified. And what happens? People are drawn to that. So here's what we need to do as a church. We need to recognize that. We need to be kind of like that Roman centurion and say, Lord, we're not worthy. Thank you for meeting with me, but I'm just going to step out of the way. I'm going to let you do the work. I'm going to say that one more time. One of the best things we can do is we can realize this is not about us. This ain't about our preferences. This ain't about what we think we need to do that, that's, that might seem wise in our own eyes. This ain't about you. It ain't about me. This is all about Jesus. And our desire is that we want to be a church that magnifies him because he's the one that's deserving of our praise, our attention, our affection, our joy, our lives. And as we magnify him, we're just going to let him just save people, change people. And you know what we get to do? Step out of the way. All right, Lord, you got it. You're the one that can save. You're the one that can restore marriages. You're the one that can bring the prodigal home. You're the one that can heal. You're the one that can do, and you're the one that can move. So the best thing you and I can do is just step out of the way. These people, man, they're walking. Can you hear it? Can you hear it? As they're walking, they're, they're like, where are we going next? I mean, he just healed a guy with a word. And I've heard about this place called Krispy Kreme. Maybe he'll just speak it. I would have been exercising so much faith that I've been carrying a plate around just saying, Lord, you can allow it to fall. I believe you can. But no, in all seriousness, can you see them? Can you see them as they're walking? They're chattering. Hey, I don't know about you. I know you just picked up following Jesus in Capernaum and, and you saw him heal and just through the word. Man, I was at the last village and he raised, he, he allowed the, the lame to walk again. Or I heard, I heard about somebody else that was over by the, the pool of Bethesda and, and Jesus just told the lame man to get up and walk. And I was there when it happened, man. And so you gotta, you gotta know that these, this crowd, they're chattering, they're excited, they're moving. But what they don't realize that in the context of this campaign, as Jesus is going to a specific place with a significant amount of people, here's the purpose. I want you to notice the spiritual providence that he puts on display. When they get into name, who's coming out of the city? The funeral procession. I'm having a hard work time with that word. I'm going to say the funeral group. That's what we're going to go with until I, you know, I don't, don't want to stutter, but I just stuttered over stutter. How about that? Who's coming out of the city? This group of people that are mourning the loss of this young man. Who's going into the city? Jesus in this crowd. Did that just so happen to happen? No. God is not a God of happenstance. Everything has a purpose. In Luke 7, verse 1, it says that he entered into Capernaum. In Luke 7, verse 11, look at the first part of this verse. It says, and it came to pass the day after. The day after... Jesus healed this Roman centurion's servant. He decides that he's going to go down to Nain. Now, now, stay with me here. This is a 20-mile walk. The day after this happened, he's going to make a 20-mile journey with some people that he hardly don't even know, right? I don't know about y'all, but you invite me on like a two-mile walk, I'm good. Three, four, five miles, buy my lunch, we're talking, right? But like, I, I get to 20 miles like... It must be something good, but this whole crowd of people are going, Jesus has somewhere to be. 
Now, let me give you a little bit more context. This guy that died in Jewish culture, they did not allow the dead to, to not be embalmed before the sun went down. So what happened is the day after, the day before that Jesus heals this man, as he's healing the Roman centurion, this guy is alive. The next morning when Jesus decides that he's gonna make, it, make his way to Capernaum, more than likely he's still alive. And on his way to that city, this 20 mile trek, this guy loses his life and it just so happens that they're taking his body out in a coffin out of the city to go and embalm him. Y'all see what's going on here? The providence of God is at work. Where Jesus, even as he's on a schedule, even as he's on a schedule, he's able to be interruptible. Now here, let me give you a definition of what providence is. Sovereignty, sovereignty is God's goal. It's what he wants to see happen. Providence is the way his hand works behind the headlines to see that come to pass. So sovereignty is he, the Bible says that he wants all to come to know him and that none should perish. He wants everybody to come to know Jesus. His providence is when he allows you to come and sit under sound teaching to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. He'd begin to work in your heart and allow that sovereignty to come to pass. Like him save somebody, right? Sovereignty is his name getting glory. Providence is the people he puts in your path to see that happen. Proverbs talks about just like the rivers of water are in the land, so is a king's heart in the hand of God. You can look at God's providence all through scripture. God's plan was to raise up the Messiah through the Jewish nation. That was his sovereign plan. But y'all remember in Esther, oh, Haman, what did he want to do? He wanted to kill all the Jews. So his providence, he placed Mordecai near the king to hear the news from, king, from Haman. He placed Esther as just so happened to be the king's wife and then through his providence, he allowed God to save his people. Y'all seeing that? So here, Jesus does this other times in the gospels. John chapter four, verse four, it says, and he must needs go through Samaria. Why did Jesus need to go through Samaria and then end up at that well in the middle of the day when nobody else is there except for that woman that's called up in sin? That's his providence. He's trying to provide forgiveness to this person. He's trying to provide life to this woman. He's trying to provide joy and peace and restoration to this woman, just like he is here. Luke chapter 13, verse 33, Jesus is in the middle of lamenting and mourning after the nation of Israel. And it says in Luke chapter 13, verse 33, he says, we need to travel today, tomorrow, and the next day so that I can get in Jerusalem because it would be bad for me to die outside of Jerusalem. What's he saying? He said, I've got to get to Jerusalem because that's the sovereign plan of God. I'm going to travel through his providence so that I can go and lay my life down so that people can come to know me. What is Jesus trying to provide? Life, forgiveness, hope, joy, peace, love, grace, himself. So here, I need you to understand that in verse 11, from verse 11, from verse 1 to verse 11 to verse 14, this is not just some sort of chance that Jesus just stumbles across. And so as he is walking to this specific place with this significant amount of people, he's about to show that he's the ultimate spiritual provider. Now, as he goes into this city, though, I need you to catch something. The chatter of the crowd was hushed in a symphony of sorrow. As they walk into this city, again, just think about what they're talking about. Man, we're getting close to the city gate. I can almost see myself being there and saying something along the lines of like, man, I hope there's I hope there's somebody that's sick that needs to be healed. And then, then my dad looking at me like, you want somebody to be sick, son? You kidding me? You kidding? You know what I'm talking about? 
uh, they're probably hoping for something to happen, right? But as they're chattering and as they're excited, as they're expecting something great to happen, all that's sort of hushed as they hear the, the mourning and the grieving and the loss from this family. So down here in verse 12, it says, now when he had come near to the gate of the city, behold, there was a dead man carried out. That's pain enough. Somebody's just lost a son. Somebody's just lost a brother. Somebody's just lost a loved one. But then look at this. It says it's the only son of his mother. And she was a widow. So as they're walking out, Jesus knew, and he made his way from Capernaum down south to Nain to cross paths with this woman to give her hope. And while they're all mourning, and while there's that symphony of sorrow where people are crying out, grieving the loss of this person, and while this woman is still trying to wrap her mind around the fact that I just lost my son, he was fine yesterday, I just lost him, I don't have a husband. I lost my husband some years ago. Now this means I'm going to be destitute and poor and I'm not going to have anybody to provide for me. While she's trying to wrap all of that stuff up in her mind, Jesus shows up. So we see the context of this campaign, but then I want you to also notice the confirmation in his conversation. This is where Jesus proves himself through his words and his work. This is where you know he is who he says he is. He is the Lord Savior. He is the Messiah. He is God. So as they're walking out, I want you to notice a couple of things. It says in there in verse 14, it says, and he had compassion on her. I think those are some of the greatest words in scripture. That Jesus has compassion on us. Let's not move too quickly on that. A holy God had compassion enough to come and give himself for us. Oh, oh let, me, let me clarify this too. Rotten, broken sinners. When I begin to think about who I am outside of Jesus and who I was outside of Jesus, it blows my mind that I'm hearing, I love you and not you're guilty and you deserve death and punishment and hell. What separates that? What changes that? The compassion that Jesus had. Jesus and his compassion. I just kind of, I just kind of wonder if the sound just kind of drowned out. The, the, the crowd stopped talking. It seemed as if like the, the people that were singing and mourning and grieving. I just kind of wonder if all that began to drown out and it was just Jesus focused in with compassion, eyes of compassion on this woman. I wonder what went through Jesus's mind. I wonder if as he's thinking and he's looking at her, he's thinking, Oh, my heart hurts for her because she's thinking about what her future could look like if I weren't here. You know, that's probably going through Jesus's mind. He's like, I don't, I don't want her to hurt. I don't want her to think about the future, what it would be if I weren't here. But you know what else? I kind of wonder if Jesus was, was envisioning thinking about his mom because there was coming a day when his mom was going to be grieving too. So in the compassionate heart of Jesus, he goes to this woman and then he says this, weep not. Now, as we think about him confirming who he is through this conversation, I've given, been given some advice from Pastor Phil, Pastor Chad, and some of my mentors 
that when you go and visit with somebody at a funeral or, or somebody that's going through something pretty hard, when you go and visit with them, they, they, the advice I've always gotten is they won't remember what you say, they'll remember that you're there. And it always is followed up with this caveat, unless you say something really, 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 really dumb. Y'all know what I'm talking about? And y'all know they give me that warning because they know I can say something that's really, 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 really dumb. I can. As we read this though, I think it's amazing that we see compassion in Jesus's words, but then we also see the timing of his words. Now, again, Jesus was in complete control of this situation and he was trying to allow her to stop the tears from blocking her eyes to see what's about to happen. I really believe that's why he was saying it. But if I said something like this to anybody that's grieving, I'm probably getting a purse just right across my face. You know what I'm talking about? I'm going to be asked to leave and never come back. That, that, y'all, y'all know what I'm talking about here, right? Like if I said something like this, hey, hey I know it hurts. Stop crying. Just quit it. Like that's not going to work in this, any sort of situation that I'm involved in. But Jesus looks at her and he says, weep not. He says, don't cry. And you got to know that in that, in that split second that she hears that, she's thinking, who is this? And why in the world is this what he's telling me to do? Like, he doesn't know. He doesn't know what I've just gone under. I, I just got, somebody just came and knocked on my door and told me my son has just lost his life today. And this guy's telling me, that, he ain't even from name. He's telling me not to cry. So you know, can y'all, can y'all see that those thoughts are flowing through his head or her head? Don't weep. Hold on, what? Isn't it interesting to you though, that when the word begins to speak directly to you, it's oftentimes inconvenient to our flesh. But when we listen to the word and when we obey the word, that's always when Jesus does his greatest work. Like, isn't it, let's take a time out from her. Isn't it amazing that when you have a pastor that gets up and begins to say that, listen, you, the word teaches us to pray. It teaches us to pray. And then we begin to get uncomfortable and our flesh is like, you know what I need? I know, I know I need to pray, but I don't know. I like, I, I'm more comfortable in my bed in the mornings. I'd rather not get up. And our flesh begins to speak. But then when we choose to obey what the word says and we say, Lord, here I am. I'm ready to, uh, to pray. I want you to live your life through me. I want to obey your word. That's when God begins to do his greatest work. Have you ever noticed that? Isn't it amazing when we just obey the word, God begins to work in just amazing ways. And I think like this woman, she probably heard for a second, weep not, what, don't cry? The word in Jesus, he, te- he te- teaches us the same kind of way. He tells us to pray, he tells us to serve. And you know what a lot of times what our flesh does? Our flesh hears that, it gets a little bit inconvenient or it seems a little bit insensitive, like serve? You want me to serve on the nursery hall? I, I gotta critique preaching on Sunday mornings, I can't. I can't give up my hour. And our flesh begins to say that stuff. I'm not gifted with kids or I'm not patient enough with kids. So if you're not patient enough with them, that's a fruit of the spirit problem. We're taught to serve. We're taught to go and serve in our flesh. When it hears that, it's inconvenient. It's insensitive to our flesh. And we begin to try to make all these excuses up rather than just obey it and allow Jesus to do his greatest work. Another way the word does that, man, it says we need to pray, we need to repent of certain things, we need to serve. How about surrender? I mean, we, we hear from a pastor each week that the life, of, the life of a Christian is dying to self and letting Jesus live his life through us. We are called, 
by God, by Jesus, to deny ourselves, pick up our cross, and then follow him. Life is not about your strength. The Christian life is not about your strength. However, when you hear that, when you read things like Galatians 2.20, you know what your flesh does? What's that preacher talking about? What's Hayden talking about? I can, I, can, I can lead grow group just fine in my own strength. I can lead singing just fine in my own strength. I can lead my family just fine in my own strength. And your flesh begins to try to convince you of things that you want to hear as opposed to you just simply surrender and saying, Lord, my flesh doesn't want this. This is inconvenient to my flesh. This is insensitive to my flesh, but here I am. I'm yielded, I'm surrendered. And I pray that you would do your greatest work through me, through a surrendered vessel for my family, for this grow group, for the worship team, through preaching, whatever it may be. You know what I think may be the hardest one when we begin to hear about? It's when the word addresses things on the lines of forgiveness. You're sitting in a room, you're sitting in a congregation, and all you can think about is the pain that you've gone through, or maybe the enemy reminds you of that pain and what that person said about you, what she said about you, what that guy said about you, what that person did to you. And you're reminded of that pain and the enemy's trying to keep it right here. And then the word, the word of God begins to speak to you. He begins to say things and teaches us how to pray like, Lord, forgive me in the same way I forgive those people that have transgressed against me. All through this New Testament, it tells us to forgive and to love and you know what happens? And listen, you know what happens when we're taught to forgive and we're reminded of that bitterness and that we're reminded of that pain that we've gone through? Our flesh says something like this. You don't know what they did to me. You don't know what they said about me. You don't know. You're right, I don't. But remember that Jesus Christ took all that for you. And he gives you the strength to forgive. And what forgiveness is, is it's just simply releasing somebody of a debt. Our flesh will convince us that we know best. But when we step out of the flesh, kill that flesh, reject that, and we step into obedience to what Jesus' word says, we will see him do his greatest work. Think about this, and we'll move on. Think about this. Joseph in the Old Testament. He was hated by his brothers. He was thrown into a pit. They wanted to kill him, but then they said, hey, we got a better idea. We'll leave him alive. We'll sell him into slavery and we'll make some money off of him. Well, you know the story of Joseph. He went through some highs and some lows. He was accused of things he never did, but then he was eventually promoted through God's providence to second in command over Egypt. And what happened over in Genesis 45 through 50? Who showed up? His brothers. If you read about Joseph's life, Judah, his, one of his brothers, Judah, is the one that made up the plan to sell him into slavery. And here's Joseph with his brothers down in front of him. He could have very easily said and reacted in his flesh, oh, Pharaoh, you have no idea what these boys did to me. But you know what he chose? Forgiveness. And you know what God did? His greatest work. The same brother that decided to sell him into slavery was forgiven. And that same brother you can read about him in Matthew chapter one in the genealogy of Jesus. When we step out, listen to what the Lord is telling us to do and not choose to listen to our flesh, but instead respond to obedience to what his word says, put your seatbelt on because you're about to see God do his greatest work. The compassion in his words, the timing of his words, Jesus sets up 
some of his greatest work when we're called to do something that's inconvenient for the flesh. And then Jesus looks at her. I think this went fast. He says, weep not. And the Bible says this group, this, this group carrying the coffin, the pallbearers, Jesus reached out and he touches the coffin. I love this. These guys who did not know who Jesus was, when he reached out and told them to stop, they stopped. This Bible says they stood still. And then look at this. He tells this woman not to weep. They stood still and he said, into the coffin, puts his hand on this young man. And he says, young man, I say unto you, arise. This is a guy that's dead. He is D-E-A-D dead. One time I did that, but I spelled dead wrong. I got it right that time. He is D-E-A-D dead. Laid out in this coffin. All these people are grieving over him. They're still crying. His mom is wiping the tears out of her eyes. But you know what she saw with clarity? She heard with clarity Jesus say, arise my son. And then she saw with clarity this old boy just sit up. I don't know about you. I don't think he blinked for a second. I think he just sat straight up. You know what I mean? Like he sat up and he said, oh, hey, mama, how you doing? And you know what I think happened? I think somebody fainted. I think somebody high-fived each other. I think that the, the pallbearer just dropped the coffin and then he had a bruise for a moment. I just think everybody lost it for a minute. You know why? Because I would have been losing it. I mean, you got Peter over there like, wow, I knew it was going to happen. You got Thomas saying, I doubt this actually happened. Are you kidding me? Like, this is crazy. Jesus spoke to a dead body and he came back to life. You know what Jesus was proving? What Romans 4, 17 says, that, that we serve the God of life and he's the one that can speak to nothing as though it were something. He's speaking to a dead body and so he says, young man, there's nothing in it yet. Come alive, arise. And you know what happened? It happened. God is confirming who he is through this conversation. And you know what's so awesome to me about this? That as he comes back to life and the result of this, of his words, as he comes back to life, it says down there that he, was, that, he that was dead sat up, began to speak, and Jesus delivered him to his mom. What Jesus did in an individual impacted those that were around him. What Jesus did in an individual impacted those that were around him. This mama, you know what her heart was filled with? Joy, hope, peace, and love. It was filled with grace. It was filled with happiness. She knew. And you know what he began to do? He just began to sit up and testify. It says he spoke. I wonder what he was talking about. He's like, I told y'all I was good. I didn't even go to the doctor. You know, like, like us men say. I told y'all. But the result of this, man, it impacted those that were around him. So we see in this passage the, the context of this campaign we see in this passage the confirmation through the conversation, but then I also want you to see the clarity for this congregation. The clarity for this congregation. The people that watched this happen, the Bible says that after he delivered him to his mother, it says, there came fear on all, and they glorified God saying that a great prophet is risen up among us, and God has visited his people, and rumor went about him all through Judea. You know what happened? They had clarity on who he was. You know why? Because people that follow Muhammad, he might write some good religious texts, and don't hear me say, I don't think they're good. Don't hear me say that the wrong way. He might write some religious texts, but he's not the God of resurrection. 
People that follow Hindu, they might point you to all sorts of little deities and little gods, but they are not the God of truth. They don't serve the God of truth. People that, that follow sects of Christianity that really aren't Christianity, but they're cultish, they're looking for hopes and work. But you and I, we understand that he's the God of the work is finished. We have somebody different. They have clarity on that. And they begin to say, he's a prophet. He's different. God is with us and it changed everything about him. So let me ask you something. Have you experienced the proof of Jesus in his word and through his works? You see, there are people in this room that I believe through God's providence has allowed you to be here today. You might be somebody that you've known, you've known scripture, you've known what Jesus has done. You can recite Bible verses, but while it might be up here, there's never been a true life change in here. And you know what? God has brought you here to prove himself to you. He's brought you here to say, not only, that, not only should you know his word, but let me prove it to you through my works. You might be sitting here thinking, Hayden, how, do, how in the world can you prove it to me through his works? I'm living proof, man. Jesus changed my life. And you know how he can change yours? Not by sitting in a pew, but by bowing your heart and repenting of your sins and putting your full faith and trust in who he is. You see, for us, we have the whole story. For these people, they saw Jesus walk into a village and raise a dead man back to life. But that was just a picture of what he was gonna do. Jesus came, the one that was seated in heaven came and took on flesh. He was born of a virgin, never did anything wrong, never sinned, and don't let anybody ever convince you that he did because 2 Corinthians 5 is still in the Bible and he that was without sin, knew no sin, became sin for us. So Jesus lived that perfect life. And yes, he opened blind eyes and proved himself that way. Yes, he opened deaf ears and proved himself that way. Yes, he allowed the lame to walk again and proved himself that way. Yes, he walked on water and proved that he's the God of creation. Yes, he blessed bread and fish and proved that he's the God of creation through feeding the 5,000. He taught, he walked, he met with sinners, he met with the broken, he, he debated with the religious, but that's not why he came. Jesus proves who he is in the fact that he humbly submitted himself and surrendered himself to those Roman soldiers and to the Pharisees. They tried him 2,000 years ago. They said he was guilty. He stood before Pilate after being beaten and scourged and mutilated and spat on. And as he was wearing the crown of thorns, the crowds cried out, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. That's why he came. And Jesus came and he was crucified, he was beaten, and he proves himself to us through his words. He said it was gonna happen, but then he proves himself to us through his works. The Bible tells us that as he was, as he was marching up the hill of Golgotha, no strength, Simon had to come and carry the cross the rest of the way. They took his body and they nailed him to the cross. They lifted the cross up as he suspended on those nails between heaven and earth. The Bible says over those, the course of those six hours, he shed his blood so that we can have the forgiveness of sin and God's wrath that you and I deserve was poured out on him. You know what Jesus said on the cross? In his words, he said, it is finished. You know how he proved those words to be true? Through the work of resur resurrection. They took his body off the cross after he died and they put it in a borrowed tomb. It was sealed with a stone. Soldiers stood in front of it, but you know what happened? The earth quaked, the soldiers fell, Jesus got up and folded his garments and he came back alive. He proves himself. So for you and I, 
As Christians in this room, let me ask you something. Are you living a life submitted and surrendered to the one who has proven himself through his word and through his works? Because see, this morning, there are probably believers in this room that you're, you're trying to walk in a surrendered way, but then as soon as he begins to hit you with that certain thing, prayer, service, forgiveness, purity, whatever it may be, you're not fully surrendered because your flesh is still trying to hold on to that rotten way of living. How about as a believer, how about just come down here and just say, Lord, I know I've been holding on to those things and I haven't wanted to let go because of my flesh, but here I am laying these things down, surrendering these things to you, just waiting for you to do your best work through it. But maybe you're here this morning and you've never been saved. I encourage you to come down here, talk to me, talk to Pastor Phil, talk to Pastor Colin, anybody, and we will show you through God's word how you can meet Jesus, the one who's proven himself over and over and over again. And when that happens, you know what happens? It impacts you and it impacts those that are around you. So with heads bowed and eyes closed, I wanna ask if you would just stand to your feet. As we go to a time of invitation and we think about what Jesus has done, there are those in this room that need to be saved. And if that's you, come down in just a moment. There are those in this room that you, you see Jesus' work in this church and you know that it's time for you to join up, this fellowship, join up with this fellowship. If that's you, come down. But I really... I didn't say this in the first service, but I feel prompted to say it right now, but this woman, the Bible says that after he came back to life, he sat up, he spake, and then it says that Jesus gave him back to his mom. I believe there are parents in this room that you have a son or a daughter that's lost. How about spend some time this morning in your seats or here in the altar just begging for God to give them that resurrected life? I don't know about you, but I can't wait for the day where God just saves my boys and I pray for that every day. I can't wait for the day that God just saves my boys and just says, hey, here's something new. Here's something alive. Here's something different. So wherever you are this morning and whatever it is that God's doing in your heart, I just wanna ask that you'd be obedient and that we'd respond to him the way he deserves to be responded to. Father, we thank you for your grace. Thank you for this church. And we pray that you would speak and you'd move during this time of response. In Jesus' name, amen. You, you be obedient as we sing. Thanks for taking the time to listen to the preaching ministry podcast of Mount Pisgah Baptist Church. If you'd like additional information, please visit mtpisgah.cc.